Hello, friends, and welcome back to the While We're Waiting Hope After Child Loss podcast. I'm Jill Sullivan, your host and one of the co-founders of the While We're Waiting ministry. This is a podcast of stories, stories of devastating loss and grief and heartbreak and struggle, and stories of hope and healing and faith and, yes, even joy. Underlying every conversation is the hope we have in Jesus Christ, which makes it possible to not just survive the loss of a child, but to live well while we're waiting to see them again in heaven one day. You can learn more about our ministry and the free bereaved parent retreats we host by visiting our website at www.whilewe'rewaiting.org. Welcome to episode number 134. A little bit of housekeeping first. I wanted to take just a moment to thank those of you who have left a rating or a review on the podcast recently. We appreciate that so much because every one of those ratings and reviews helps raise our profile in the search engines and makes it easier for other hurting moms and dads to find the podcast. So thank you. I'm so pleased today to introduce you to my friend, Laura Granger. We met two years ago when she attended our first While We're Waiting weekend in Illinois, and I was so touched by the story of her son, Luke. I suppose that's because it's somewhat similar to my own, but also because of the incredible attitude her sunshine boy had throughout his cancer journey. I believe you'll be inspired, too, as she shares Luke's story and the impact it had on her faith with us today. Hi, Laura. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hi, Jill. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I have been looking forward to our chat for quite a while now. So let's start by giving you the opportunity to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Tell us where you're from and what life is like for you there. So uh, I live in near Lansing, Michigan, Mason, Michigan, just south of Lansing, right in the middle of Michigan. I am married to James. We've been married for 31 years. We moved up here about 30 years ago. We have uh, three boys. Sam is our oldest. He's 28. Jay is uh, almost 26. And Luke would be 22. So both Sam and Jay are on the autism spectrum. And uh, Sam has been able to live independently. He just lives 15, 20 minutes from us. But uh, definitely still needs needs us as kind of a safety net. And every now and then we, we have to help him out with some life decisions or things he has to do. Yeah. Jay, um, it has a little more impairment, um, not necessarily the autism, but he has some cognitive delays too. So I am his legal guardian. My husband and I are, and, uh, he lives with us and he is a sweetheart of a person and just, really, you know, not hard to live with at all. But at the same time as a lot of my friends are entering these empty nest stage, it's a challenge when I think we're not there and we won't ever be there unless, which maybe someday, you know, we find a different place for him to live. But for now, so um, my husband is a pastor of a church He, uh, for about 20 years, he worked for a a youth ministry called Young Life. And then about seven, eight years ago, transitioned to working in the church as a pastor. Um, Young Life is just a ministry that the mission is to present the gospel to middle school kids, high school kids, even college kids. So what I like to do, hobbies, um, 
I like to read. Be really honest, I do a lot of binge watching of Netflix and other things like that. (laughs) (laughs) My Uh husband likes to watch a lot of sports. Um, I do like to to walk or bike, um, do a little gardening. Um, I lead a ministry called Grief Share, which some of the listeners may be familiar with, kind of as a out of my it was something I was already interested in even before everything happened with Luke. But, um, you know, I wanted to find a way to minister to others going through deep grief. So. Yeah. Yeah. You and your husband actually sound a lot like a lot like myself and my husband, just kind of the, our interests and the things we enjoy doing. And we would probably be friends yes. if, if we lived closer together. We could hang out and, and enjoy time together. So today we're really here to talk about your youngest son, Luke. I, I would love for you to help the listeners get to know him a little bit. So just tell us all about him. What was Luke like? So Luke was, um, he was just the song, You Are My Sunshine. You know, I think of that oh, yes. when I think of Luke. And I did sing that to him when he was young, even as he got a little older. But it was to wake him up in the morning. Sometimes I sang other songs, too. But when I would sing that, that one really hit home with him for me inside my heart, um, that he's, he's like sunshine. He was, um, you know, as a baby, he was actually just so easy and laid back and happy. And then growing up, um, he was an extreme extrovert. He loved people, loved interacting with people, didn't care how old they were, how different or alike they were from him. He loved interacting with people. And so he didn't like to be alone which wasn't as much that he was afraid to be alone as in his mind. It was like, well, why would I be alone if I could be with people? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So um, I was, as he was growing up, he spent a lot of time with me. My husband, I was a stay at home mom. So I was there a lot. His brothers, he got along with them, but on the autism spectrum, they didn't interact with him quite the way he would have liked. Um, So he spent a lot of time, just as my buddy, if I was going to run errands, he'd run errands with me. Um, if I liked something, he wanted to, to do it with me. So, uh, he, he really loved watching certain shows. And so there were shows that were kind of our shows. And when he was younger, it was wizards of Waverly place, which was a Disney channel one. And he loved to just sit down and mom and I are going to binge watch some, you know, wizards. (laughs) And then yeah, uh, as he that. got older, I'd let him watch Gilmore Girls with me. And that became our show. Um, and again, it was like that shared experience. And if he had a favorite movie, he wanted me to see it and watch it with them. We would read books together, um, like The Hunger Games or when he was younger, the um, Percy Jackson uh, books. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, a lot of shared experiences. He was very smart. Um so, like, as a five-year-old, he was beating young adults and adults regularly at Connect Four. They would, because of the ministry that we were doing, they'd come into our house and he'd say, want to play Connect Four? Because he knew, I'm going to beat this person. <laughs> <laughs> and they'd be like, oh, sure, yeah. this cute little five-year-old. And the first game would go real quick. And then he'd say, let's play again. And the second game, you could see they were starting to, oh, I, I might need to try here, you know, a little. Oh, how funny. And they'd lose again. By the third game, uh-huh. well, halfway through, they would look at me and say, I'm really trying. <laughs> and I'd say, I know, I really try to, but he beats me most of the uh-huh. time. 
<laughs> he just wow, had this a little brain, shark. Yeah, for strategy, for math. Um, he loved the color yellow, which was just like his personality. So he loved to wear yellow and orange, the brighter, the better. And then he would, if he would get an interest, he would work on it till he could master it. Like yo-yo, he, he learned several yo-yo tricks. Uh, rollerblading was something he was interested in a while. Um, playing frisbee. And then in uh, middle school, it was magic. And he learned several um, card trick magic tricks that amazed, you know, people. And I, he would practice on me. So sometimes I knew how he did the trick. I couldn't have done it myself, but uh, sometimes I never figured out how he did the trick. But the other thing was because of that personality of loving to interact with people and draw people in. Like one time we were at the theater and we were waiting for the doors to open and he just goes over to this family group and says, can I show you a card trick? And he's making them all laugh and having conversations with them and amazing them with the card. <laughs> he was just kind of an entertainer. He um, was musically talented. He learned to play the piano through lessons. Um, I think he was about eight or nine when he started. But again, if there was a song he heard that he really wanted to learn, he would just keep working on it till he mastered it. He played flute when he could pick a band instrument. And the funny thing about that was, I said, well, why are you picking flute? And he said, well, because it's small and it'll fit in my locker <laughs> and it won't be heavy to carry home. <laughs> That's right. Good practical thinker there. Right. <laughs> so uh, Rubik's Cube was one of the things he was really into towards um, the end of his life. He had learned how the, to do them in different sizes. So like uh, your standard Rubik's cube has six sides and each side is three by three, but he would learn four by four and five by five and six by six. One of the last wow. things he wanted to master is he would blindfold himself and do just the standard Rubik's cube. So he was very smart and he liked a challenge and he worked hard to do those. So um, he also, which I'll talk a little more about, had a strong faith in God. So, mm. Yeah. So at some point, you realized that something was going on with Luke's health. What what happened? So it was the summer uh, between his eighth grade year and his freshman year in high school. And he had been playing Frisbee and said he came down in his ankle kind of funny and he thought he heard it. And he was limping a little bit and it was hurting him. And um, he said, well, you got to take me to the doctor. And I said, well, let's give it a couple weeks because if it's a, a strain or a sprain, it'll get better. But it didn't. Sure. So, you know, we went to the doctor. We'd give him pain and he was limping on it some. And, but it was off and on. Sometimes it wouldn't bother him at all. Other times it was bothering him a lot more. We ended up going to the doctor three times that summer. Each time we saw the PA because the doctor was too busy to see us. And because I didn't think it was that emergent and urgent, I was like, yeah, the PA PCS. He kept playing Frisbee. He kept going to tennis practices. (laughs) He kept doing whatever he wanted to do, even though at times he was limping a lot. And uh, towards the middle and end of the summer, it was starting to swell and the pain was starting to become more of a problem. And uh, we were referred to a sports medicine doctor And that doctor decided to do an MRI scan, uh, still thinking it was maybe a tear in the Achilles or something. 
And then he ordered up a second one. And the second one, he said, I want it done with contrast. And what some of us know who have been in the world of cancer, and what I didn't know then, was that meant he thought he saw something that looked like a growth or a tumor, and he needed the contrast to, to show him. So it was the day before his 15th birthday. It was early in the morning. He had just gotten back from Young Life Camp the night before and was sleeping. He always slept in late anyway. And um, my husband had gotten a couple calls from the doctor's office, and he said, um, I'm going to give him a call on my way up to church, to the office. And I said, okay. And then he, he came back in before he ever left the garage, and he said, Laura, they're getting the doctor out of a meeting to talk to me. Um, so I thought maybe I should just take the call here. And I, I think I remember both of us saying, oh, he's, he's probably going to need surgery, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. But we didn't imagine that he was going to say what he said, which was your son has a very large tumor in his right calf. It's probably about seven inches long. And both myself and the radiologist who read the scan think it's most likely cancerous, but you won't know for sure until you have a biopsy. Wow. So, um, you know, you always remember those calls or those meetings, those moments. I'll always remember it was the day before his 15th birthday, you know. Oh, sure. Um, So that was August 14th. By the 21st, we got the results that it was something called rhabdomyosarcoma, which is cancer. I had never heard of that. Um, I also didn't know that it was a pediatric cancer and that there are cancers that are specific to children that adults mostly don't get. Um, We were referred to a children's hospital about an hour, 15 minute drive from us in Grand Rapids. It was an excellent hospital. We're always very grateful that we could have him treated there. And by the following week, the 28th, it was... We were told it's stage four. It had spread into his pelvic, pelvis area, a couple spots in his lungs, and that he would need his leg amputated, that there was no way to save the leg, that the tumor had taken over too much. Um, and I just remember the, it was such a shock. And it was like, how is this real? This can't be real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why, how am I? talking to doctors about when we're going to amputate my son's leg. He's totally healthy. He had never had an operation. He had never had a major illness or injury. So, um, yeah. And then I think it was September 3rd, he had his leg amputated. We decided to start with that. And that was right before Labor Day. And then the Tuesday after Labor Day, school was starting and he was still in the hospital recovering from the amputation. And we just knew there wouldn't be any tennis or band camp this year. Maybe, you know, with an amputation, he might never really play tennis competitively, which was fine. He was only doing it for fun. But, you know, it's just one of those things taken away from him. Um, Yeah, marching. We hoped maybe one day he'd be able to march in a marching band, you know. Being stage four, we knew we didn't look at the odds right away, the statistics, but we knew that meant that it was probably more likely this would take him than not. Um, but we 
we did, like I said, we felt a lot of confidence in the doctors that we were working with and knew that they were going to, you know, give it all they could. So that what was laid out was 54 weeks of treatment. And 54 weeks of treatment laid out, that's without any delays, which most people, or most children at least, are going to have delays for different reasons. It was a lot of chemo. There were almost every week he got chemo treatment. Uh, One of the drug combos was a five-day. So he would get the chemo for one to two hours a day, but it was for five days in a row, and so it was inpatient. The other two that were longer were two days and three days, I think. And they were different combinations of different chemo drugs. And then the weeks that were light meant we went in outpatient and he just had actually one quick uh, push, like injection that didn't take any time of chemo. So it was, it was just really rough. And of course, yeah. Well, one of the things that happened right away, was while he was still recovering from the amputation surgery, he started having more and more pain in his um, in his stomach, intestines, and he ended up having emergency surgery to have two tumors removed from his intestines that were blocking his intestines. And that was five weeks after the original scans, and they didn't show up in those original oh, scans. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So it was, you know, my husband and I just, it was so scary to think how aggressive this cancer was. And then they said, we got to give him just a week to recover from the surgery. And then we've got to start the chemo, which they did. And, you know, other than him just being wiped out and feeling lousy, it went okay. But he felt sick most of the time, weak. He slowly... um was able to work with a, a prosthetician. I'm not sure I'm saying that right, but prosthetics guy to get his prosthetic leg. Um, mm-hmm. But it was very difficult to do that PT and work on it because he was always having chemo and always feeling sick and weak yeah. and dizzy. Yeah. And so sometimes you couldn't do PT if you're feeling that way. Right. Um, yeah, so I always felt like so much of an up, uphill climb for him and the the surgeon early on would say set goals you yeah you want to go to young life camp by november you can do that on your prosthetic he hadn't even gotten a prosthetic leg by november much less be able to walk on it you know and he eventually just he hated when they'd say set goals set goals i don't want to set goals they're not going to work <laughs> right uh-huh. uh-huh yeah just one day at a time yeah yeah so, um, I, you know, I pretty much spent almost all my time with Luke at that point. My uh, oldest, I think he was starting uh, community college, or maybe it was even his mm-hmm. second year. Oh, no, you know what? He was starting MSU that year, but he would drive himself. He lived with us, but he mostly took care of himself. And then my in-laws had come into town for the first three months and just helped mostly with Jay, who which was mostly driving him back and forth. He played football and um, Mm -hmm. needed help with homework and things like that. Um, So uh, Luke and I spent a lot of time together Mm -hmm. and I treasure that Luke was always, we were, he still liked spending time with his mom. So (laughs) 
Yes, yes. Um, Mm -hmm. But it was also terrible, you know, to have to watch scans and and accesses of the port. And when he just felt awful, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. So, oh, I, you know, his faith, I did want to talk about that a little early on. Yes, please. He was being diagnosed. My husband had said to him, you know, Luke, just 400 children a year in the U.S. get diagnosed with this. So you're one in 400. And Luke said, well, I'm glad it's me because I know Jesus and some of these kids don't. And it's going to be a lot harder for them. (laughs) And we were just... kind of flabbergasted at that attitude and not to say that he went through all the treatment like oh this is no problem (laughs) right right and then um as we were getting that the diagnosis of stage four and it's going to be at least a year of treatment and you're going to have your leg amputated I had said to him oh this is just not fair and you don't deserve this And he said, Mom, I don't deserve anything. I deserve the death that Jesus died on the cross for me. You know, like, you're not looking at this right, Mom. Yeah. Isn't that something when our kids teach us? Yeah. I was even frustrated with him because I wanted to say, no, you got to get angry and fight, you know? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. But I knew he was right, too, you know? So, um, yeah. So then it was... um, February of 2017, about 18 months after we started treatment. So the one year plan had, um, we had to switch plans after about nine months because there was some new growth, new, new tumors growing. And then it was, didn't even have a time frame as far as how long it would be. We just had to keep doing it, which really frustrated right. Luke. He, he preferred to know there would be an ending he even at times he would ask the doctor, you don't know how long I'll have to be on this drug or how long I'll have to do this. And she said, no. And he said, well, can you tell, like, is, is there more chance that I'm going to die from this than before? And he, she said, no, the, the odds haven't changed. And he would start to cry. And I said, what, what would you do differently if you knew you were going to die, Luke? And he said, well, I wouldn't have to try to keep up with school and keep setting these goals and, you know to try to meet. And so it was February of 2017 and the cancer was growing again. He had never had a fully clear scan. He had gotten to the point where I think there was just one tumor on a scan, but it had never, you know, it was never like he was in remission. And sure. um, the doctor said, told him, you know, we know now that this will take your life. You've asked me and and I was honest with you and I do know this will take your life. And Luke was even relieved because Mm. he knew the ending, you know? Yeah. It wasn't the ending he wanted, but he, at least for him, he wanted to know there would be an ending, you know, Mm -hmm. to treatments. So, um, he, The one thing he wanted to do was volunteer at a Young Life camp to work for a month. And the kind of things they do is they, the high schoolers that volunteer for a month at these Young Life camps, they might wait tables during the meals and bring the food out and serve it to the the groups of kids that um, do laundry, maybe outdoor crew. 
So he said, yeah, I want to do a couple of clinical trials or do something to try to give me some more time. Um, and so we did. And then um, in August, well, it was the end of July, he started working at the Young Life Camp. And uh, by then we were almost done with the clinical trials. And he was, he was coughing a lot more because he had tumors growing in his lungs and he was, you know, very low energy, but he was so excited to get to serve at Young Life Camp. Um, he worked in the laundry mostly where he could just kind of stand or sit and fold things. Sure. Um, so, um, yeah, but after that um, first week, he had felt sicker and sicker and he wasn't um, able to do as much as he wanted. And he had said, I think maybe I need to go home. And it was um, the end of a week of camp, and um, I was so upset and angry with God because I had just prayed all summer that he get to serve on work crew, and it wasn't looking like he was really going to get to. And um, I just I found a spot in camp where nobody was around, went out to the outskirts, and I just was yelling, God, this isn't fair. This is all we wanted. I know he's going to die, but he just wanted to work and serve. And um, he woke up later that night and just had all this energy and felt so much better. And by the next morning, we decided we would stay. And he he was able to do a lot more work that next week. Um, Good. Yeah. So by the end of that week, when he was getting more and more tired, he said, my dream has been fulfilled and I'm ready Mm -hmm. to go home now. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that was in August, a little before his 17th birthday. We had a 17th birthday party for him because he loved parties. It was hard for him because um, he was not feeling well by then, but he still gave it a a shot. Um, And he passed away. He wanted to stay at home. He passed away at home on uh, September 6, 2017. Mm. What an amazing young man that his dream was to serve others. Yeah. That, that was his whole dream. Yeah. Uh, and and he got to fulfill that. Um, not as long as probably he would have liked or that you would have liked. But that just amazes me that that was his goal and his dream. Yeah. And he loved it. He loved being there and serving. And he was able to accept that because his what it looked like for him to serve is way different than the rest of the high school students serving there because, you know, he woke up late whenever he woke up and he had hard nights, sure. you know, sometimes and he would take a break in the afternoon and just lay down and, you know, but, uh, he still was just so thrilled that he got to do that. So, Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So that was really a hard two-year-long battle. Yes. How did you keep your faith? It sounds like he kept his faith strong the whole time. How did you keep your faith through the ups and downs of a cancer battle? Uh, You know, just um, I continued to, when I could, go to the Word and read. I did a lot of reading in the Psalms. Like I said, I just really honest with God when I was struggling, when I was mad. Why Why are you allowing this to happen, God? I just was honest and told God that. 
So I think it was around March of 2016, Luke had been in treatment maybe six months or so. And there was another boy in his school who had a similar cancer and had lost his leg and died in March of, of 2016. And um, it really got me down because I just kept thinking, this this could be Luke. Is this going to be Luke? This could be Luke in another year, you know. Yeah. And um, it was making it very hard to just go through daily life with this hanging over me. And I just, I said, God, I don't, I got, I got to stop thinking about this all the time. I don't know how you got to help me. And I can't say the exact what I did or what God did, but within a couple of months time, I, my attitude had changed to, I got today with Luke and I'm really grateful for this day with Luke that I got. So more of this one day at a time and just what can I be grateful for? in each day. And um, like I said, I just think that was the Holy Spirit. I can't tell you that I did something in particular that helped change that, but it really helped me get through that next year of all these tough decisions and and tough things to hear and knowing that he was going to pass away. Mm -hmm. You know, our stories are similar. In that, you know, our daughter was diagnosed with cancer as well, yeah. a terminal cancer. Yeah. And one of the things that I just kind of referred to as a gift that cancer gave us was just what you were talking about, that appreciation and awareness of every single day that we had and that we soaked up and savored every moment that we had. We were just aware of the importance of doing that. And I think so often we just live our lives, but I know before Hannah was diagnosed, you know, I just lived my life from day to day and really didn't see, didn't grab a hold of the beauty in every day. Yes. Um, and I think living with a child with terminal cancer taught me that the importance of every day. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked too about that time that you got to spend at the hospital with Luke and, you know, you watched shows together and things like that. I have those same kind of memories with Hannah, yeah. even though the situation was terrible and, you know, you couldn't look past the day that you were in because it was just too awful to think of what the future might hold. But we were able to spend so much time together and enjoy that time that we had. So. Yeah. yeah. And I don't, I don't know. Did, did you guys laugh a lot? Luke had us laugh. We did. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. With as hard as it was, we just would find yeah. things to laugh at. <laughs> yes. And Hannah was real good about laughing at herself. Yeah. Um, she's always had been that way. And, you know, as things progressed and, you know, she was limited on what she could do. She would always laugh about it. And um, I don't know, it, it just really, really special times that I'm grateful for. Yeah. And I'm glad you had those kinds of time with Luke as well. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. So also, like Luke, Hannah went to heaven when she was 17. Um, one of the things that I really struggled with um, right after she went to heaven with all the things that she was missing out on, she missed out on going to prom, graduating from high school, going to college, getting married. And I imagine you have experienced some of those same feelings. How have you dealt with that? <laughs> um, mostly, I tell myself where Luke is right now is even though I can't imagine it, is so much better that he doesn't feel like he missed out. Yes. Um, 
I'll be honest, because I have two other sons on the autism spectrum, I already struggled with those kinds of Mm -hmm. things that um, my sons missed out on. And um, honestly struggled as a mom feeling like I missed out on some of those experiences, getting to be the mom of, you know, boys that got to do those things um, or children that got to do those things. But again, I, I think the way I deal with it is is just thinking of what the big picture is mm. and that mm-hmm. acknowledging that it is a grief and it is sad and that's okay to lament what they missed out on, what I've missed out on, but that in the big picture, if they know the Lord and if we're glorifying the Lord, that that's, you know, more important. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's the same way that I dealt with the with those things too, and I love that you use the word lament because I do. I think those are things that we have to lament, we have to grieve, and and accept those things and move forward from there. Yeah. Easier said than done, for yes, sure. Yes, yes. It's a. I said yeah. it very quickly, but it was a a process over yeah. time, months. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. Yes, definitely a process. And still something that I revisit yes. from time to time. Yes, it you does know? still pop up. Yes. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yep. Um, at our retreats, we often talk about how men and women grieve differently. Did you and your husband grieve differently? And if so, how did you work through those issues? Um. Yeah, Um. I know. Just in general, I'm more of a, I want to process through talking or journaling. Um, so I was already seeing a counselor even throughout Luke's treatment. So that was somebody I could talk to. Yeah. Um, but he did eventually start seeing a counselor too to talk through his grief. But yeah, it, he, and he was very open and willing to listen to me. And, but he was, he didn't share as much. He didn't seem to need to talk it out as much as I did. But we both, you know, when we're having sad days and would say, you know, I'm just sad, or we might even say why we're sad. We just sit with each other and say, I know, and, mm-hmm. you know, hold each other. Mm-hmm. I think about that. The Luke died at, I don't know, 5.30 a.m. in the morning. And, um, James was out for a lot of the day. I I think I've asked him where he was. I know some of the time he was working with the funeral home and working on setting or organizing for the memorial service. And and that seemed to be what he wanted to do, go do something. Mm-hmm. Whereas I just wanted to sit and I felt somewhat immobilized, but, you know, and I just, I needed more to be by myself and not doing anything. So I I actually asked James about, you know, how do you think we (laughs) process grief differently, you know? And James has always been really good at, um, with friendships, um, he initiates and he says, let's get together and let's talk regularly. And so he would regularly have set up times where he would get together either one-on-one or with two or three of his closest friends and they would just listen to whatever he wanted to talk about and support wow. him. And um, I was having trouble with that with my friends. And it might be because I wasn't initiating like he was. You know, I was kind of waiting for them. 
But I, I like to seek out other moms who have been in my situation that have lost a child. Mm-hmm. And I, I liked, you know, I, I looked into grief share and started going to grief share. And I tried another couple of support groups in the area too. And he's never felt that he wanted to do that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but you know, it's just a difference. He'd rather be with his friends that know him. I'd rather be with, even though there might be strangers at first, people that have been through my experience too yeah. and would understand me better. We, we're going to talk a little more about the Luke Legacy Fund that got established. He, Luke, uh, James really established that and runs it. And although I support it, it, it doesn't give me the kind of outlet for my grief that it does for him. But then uh-huh. for me... Um, I I got grief share started at the church and ministering to others in that way um, yeah. is another outlet for me that, you know, and he's a pastor, so he does things like that, but he doesn't feel as drawn to it as I do to as a way to, you know, use my grief and, I don't know, bring honor to Luke's life. Yeah. It sounds like you've each kind of found your own way of doing that and that you give each other grace to do the different things that God has called you to do. We do. I mean, there have been, you know, moments (laughs) where maybe we butted heads or didn't feel understood, but I'd say overall, we have been able to give each other grace and just, you know, even if I don't totally understand how you handle your grief, I know you're handling it the way you need to handle it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's important because we're not going to handle it the same way and we just have to give each other grace Mm -hmm. to do what we each need to do. Thank you for that. So you just passed the five year mark since Luke went to heaven, but if you would think back to the very early days of your grief and talk to that mom or dad that's listening who finds themselves at the very beginning of their child loss journey, what, what advice or what would you say to them? Um, it is as terrible as it feels, as huh. almost repulsive <laughs> as it feels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It, um, you know, uh, my counselor would say to me a lot, be gentle with yourself, you know, allow myself the time that I needed to grieve or feel, or even sometimes spend some time deflecting. <laughs> you know? Um, sure. now for me, I had to, at the time our, our son Jay was going to to a community college and he didn't drive and I had to drive him there and I did grocery shopping and just the bare minimum to keep the house going. And then that was all I could give, you know, if I had to work or if I had young children, I'm sure God would have given me the the strength to get through (laughs) that. Yeah. But when I had done everything that needed to be done, I just gave myself a lot of grace. I let myself feel what I was going to feel when it popped up. I mean, obviously, you know, sometimes it was the middle of the grocery store and I held it in until I was driving home or, <laughs> yes. Oh, um, yes. you know, and James has talked about 
you know, he even had some of that too, where, you know, sometimes it just, he's in the car and it just overcomes him and he finds himself crying and pulls over and lets himself cry for a little while, you know? So you have to allow yourself to feel it. And I think there's a little battle going on inside of us in those early years because feeling it is too overwhelming. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So as it comes, when you can allow yourself to feel it, allow yourself, but give yourself lots of grace. It's funny that you mentioned driving in the car, both for yourself and for your husband, that that's kind of the place where you, where it would hit you. Same thing for me. Um, I could pretty well cope all, you know, not all the time, but I mean, I could, I could function, Mm -hmm. but it was almost when I got in the car behind the wheel and could think and there's nothing else to do to keep your mind occupied. That's when it would hit me too. Right. And those tears would come and, you know, it got to where I almost dreaded driving in the car because it was just, (laughs) that's where the heaviness would seem to hit. But like you said, you have to let yourself feel it. And that's, that's where I would feel it. Yep. And I would let myself, I I don't know, you know, when I, when I was like, I just can't do it right now and didn't have other things to do. That was when the binge watching would start (laughs) Mm, (laughs) and something light and maybe funny, but not related Uh to my life. You know, I just needed a distraction sometimes for a while. And just my opinion, I'm not an expert, but I, I, I think those distractions, if they're not an unhealthy and don't take over are right. are actually what we need sometimes because we can only take sometimes the the deep intense grief in in small portions yes. and but those small yeah. portions in the beginning are coming regularly you know mm-hmm. and they're very intense yeah yeah absolutely yeah i think what you said is very helpful i think sometimes it's just helpful to know we're not crazy and that we're not alone in our grief and that other people have struggled with the same thing and that other people cry when they drive too yeah so hopefully that will be helpful to someone this concludes the first half of my conversation with laura granger i hope you'll come back next week as we extend our conversation to cover a variety of issues faced by bereaved parents including the things people say, handling holidays and birthdays, and the before and after of child loss. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to sharing the rest of our chat with you next Wednesday.